Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total protonic reversal. Protonic reversal. Protonic reversal. With your host, Kevin Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rock about music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though, if you don't laugh, Confidence of a hero or fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. science thing right indeed 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 it is a science thing it is a science place it is a scientific fact that we are all up in your face it is time for the one the only protonic reversal welcome to it hey special stay-at-home edition for you today with a very special guest someone i've been looking forward to talking to for a very very long time and uh, I'm a huge fan of all of his bands, uh, his labels, general ethos, Ian McKay. And if you are here for the first time, welcome. Welcome to the show. Long-form discussion show. So there's going to be some long, long-form discussion with a living legend. Let's not belabor the point any longer. Let's... Yo. Ian, welcome to the show, <clears throat> man. Can you hear me all right? I, I can hear you great. You're coming loud, clear, beautiful, and could not be better. Good. Uh, thanks so much for agreeing to be on the show, man. Really appreciate the time. No problem. I'm sorry it took so long to get it sorted out. I have a lot of people have contacted me about doing podcast interviews, but it's hard for me to set up because it's just they're they're a time investment. They're usually long, and I got a million things going on all the time. Yeah. Um, but also, it's just weird. <laughs> it's also weird because I just feel like that. I'm always up for a conversation, but there's something about the format of podcasts. It sort of seems a little, they seem a little aimless sometimes. Mm. Um, and I'm not exact, you know, like they're, they're not, they're different. There's sort of a different kind of format. They're not, even when the interviews and in, say fanzines, they're less, they were tend to be less conversational. Podcasts tend to be more conversational, which I like a conversation. It's just that they're some of the people quite often, don't really have they're just sort of like let's see where this goes which is it was <laughs> they don't have a plan you know, necessarily did they just kind of right well i mean I think, yeah. which is fine you know i mean but the point is that as an interviewee or somebody that people want to interview i mean you can it after a while it's like you can only just see where things go so many times right <laughs> it, it doesn't always feel like the best use of your time necessarily <laughs> well, it just feels like, no, it's just mostly that I'm trying to, um, I'm just trying to understand the format. Like, it's a different, like, doing interviews for, say, fanzines early on, the format, I understood that format really well. And then when I did music magazines or newspapers, I understood that format. Or if I do school papers, um, I do a tremendous amount of interviews for high school and college students because I'm sort of committed to that as you no know, information sharing. But the podcast format 
I haven't quite got my mind around it. I think that there's, you know, obviously, you know, Mark Marin, I think really was a major game changer for a lot of people. 900-pound um, gorilla in the room, to be sure. I mean, it's, yeah. Right. And I think that he's, that guy is supremely good at what he does, but he has the ability to sort of, well, first off, I think he, the guests that he gets are maybe more vulnerable, um, to this, but he gets people to kind of spill in a way that I think up. makes yeah. For, yeah. You know, it reminds me a lot of, in 1993, I think, Fugazi played three nights at the First Avenue in uh, Minneapolis. And one of the nights, uh, you know, we always tried to find local bands or local acts to play with, and the guy who booked the place, this guy, Steve McClellan, who was a great person, and really visionary. Steve came to me with this idea of having a hypnotist open for us. And there was a guy named, well, the name might come back to me, but anyway, literally was just a hypnotist. And <laughs> that's different. Yeah. Guy, why not? <laughs> so this guy came on, um, and, uh, there's probably, I don't know, 1500, 1700, somewhere around. I mean, it's a big room full of people. And, I don't think he typically tried to hip, you know, work with that kind of crowd. These are all standing too. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a rock show, but he got 12 or 15 people on stage and he went through a series of questions and people sort of were dismissed. And then finally there's about six people left and he had them doing things on stage that were insane, you know, like barking like a dog or hopping like a rabbit or, and it was just very strange, you know, you could, and I wondered if they were plants because I couldn't believe how compliant they were. Right. One of the, one of the kids that came off the stage, I saw him afterwards or after the set. And I said to him, oh, his name was, I'm sorry, the hypnotist's name was John Ivan Palmer. It just came back to me. And I said to this kid, are you with him? He's like, no. I go, what was that about? He goes like, I have no idea. Like I, <laughs> he was as surprised what, as anyone, what, huh? Okay. Yeah, and then I said to, um, I was talking to somebody later on, and they said the thing about hypnotism is that it's really a matter of filtration. That the hypnotist looks at a room, and filters out people who are less suggestive. And the very first and most serious move that the hypnotist makes of the is that initial call for volunteers can anybody who volunteers to come up to see if they want to be hypnotized right there is saying i'm open attitude uh, right. certain mindset that they're going to have right right and that's the first like line of defense and uh actually i think john ivan palmer told me this he said that there's always going to be one or two people who are up there as a joke but they're very easy to weed out because they're just bullshitting, but then the uh, but the rest of the people are there because they sort of felt like they just volunteer and then they they want to do well. It just becomes it just becomes they are under a sort of spell, but maybe it's not hypnotism exactly, or at least as we understand it. And I think to some degree, that's Mark Maron's secret too, is that the people who want to be on his show already know what they're getting into. And they've got a hanky. They're ready for crying, right? Right. There's a certain buy-in with it, and uh, yeah, I think I think you're 
onto something that a lot of podcasts, because the idea is a podcast is a radio show without the radio. And that, that can mean a lot of things, but I think some people kind of get enchanted by the sound of their own voice and kind of uh, drunk on the freedom <laughs> of what the format is without actually following a, a structure or plan. It, it's easy to do. You know, this show- I mean, I'm startled by the number of two and three hour podcasts that I've, people send me where it's usually like a couple of dudes or a couple of ladies or somebody just, just BSing, just, prat- <laughs> just bullshitting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just talking and, and like, and they, and you know, and you almost always know you're in for trouble because they start with like, Hey guys. And you're like, Oh, this is not going to go well. And, that's, that's your warning um, sign. huh? <laughs> but there are, you know, occasionally there, you know, I've come across a few that seem like real kind of bro fest, but then something kind of, there is something sometimes occasionally, I've had a friend interviewed on these things. I've gone to listen to interviews, and there's something kind of charming about it. But I don't know if I don't have the patience to figure out what that what that what it is. It's charming. I just like it's. I can't sit there for two hours and cover every all the subjects like the latest movies and video games. And I don't, you know, that's not. It, it seems like they're just people looking for something to do, which is fine. I just I mean. Well, That's it. It know. depends on the show. And the thing is, the barrier of entry is very low. Like, it's very easy to do a show. And that's kind of like the punk rock thing, right? It's very easy to uh, be a band in some ways. And so people have different reasons and different things that they do. I personally, Ian, I'm, I'm a harsh critic of, of a lot of podcasts because I don't like the directionless thing. That actually really bothers me. I mean, what I try to do with this show is, you know, it sounds ephemeral and uh you know very easy like i I keep it not in like super intense necessarily but there's a plan with it always Uh, at some point i'd like to ask you a question too uh but but i'm there with you i mean it's an interesting format and i think one of the things with quarantine that we've noticed is that a lot of people have been you know kind of putting their toes in the water and trying it out and there's always that you know it's like the first couple episodes it's like it's it's like a band's first demo right you know when someone first starts off with something they're not necessarily going to be aces at it immediately some are and that's wonderful for them but i I think that there's a lot of folks that are they're trying it out because it's like they got nothing but time why wouldn't you so i understand that a lot of people would want to talk to you i understand that that could be i'm not mad i'm not mad at people (laughs) yeah you never know i'm not right i'm not mad at i'm not mad at anybody making a podcast at all i just i just mostly it's an interesting format Something I'm thinking about. I'm, did you say you didn't like directions or direct? What did you say? I didn't quite understand what you said oh, there. No, no. I say I. Even though I make it, people may not necessarily under, understand it. Uh, I take pride in the fact that I have a direction to what I do with this show, which is this is a very oh, meta conversation. But I don't care for podcasts that, hey, we're just going to talk and see what happens. Usually, like every right. once in a while, I that see. works. But it, that's yeah. There's a part of my brain that's like, no, have some. Have some plans. Right. Well, I do think that one thing about your comment about demos and punk rock band, for that matter, um, it's true that you know you could say that the bar is low and anybody can be in a band and it's easy to put on a punk show. I understand that that point of view. I also think that the thing about punk rock, in my mind, since I consider punk the free space it's really the place where new ideas can be presented. And occasionally there are people who are really visionary. They have ideas that no one really has thought about before, or they have ways of presenting something that have no one's ever thought about before. And that no nightclub or, or, right. you know, more 
club style setting would ever um, give them access to. And sometimes their first demos, in my mind, ironically, are the best because it's before they figured. Yeah. Right. Because they before they figured it out. You know, it's like I think that um, one of the things I've always loved about punk, in my mind, is it's usually people who are relatively new to their instruments, who are thinking they're sound like something and playing and thinking they sound like some other band or some kind of music. But because of this really peculiar relationship with their instrument, it sounds nothing like that. But what it sounds like is something that no one's ever played before. And it's right. that's like that's the new thing. And actually, I always tell people, like, if you're familiar with the band Void, that's what Void was. Like, the people in Void, I think, really had a different idea of what they were doing in terms of what they were going for as opposed to what came out of that out of that studio session, which was so insane sounding. But if they if they were if they'd all been to music school and really had their chops, it would have been nobody nobody would have cared. It, it would have hit differently. And I think you hit on an important thing that somehow uh, you will get innovation, even if it's like accidental innovation, just because someone's like, oh, right. how how did this band do this? I think it might be. Oh no, that wasn't it at all. But that's kind of cool sounding. All right. Uh, and I'm into that. And just going back to the earlier part of the conversation, I feel like some podcasts can do that. They can accidentally strike gold just because they're trying to. Agreed. Yeah, maybe they're trying Agreed. to emulate Marin or maybe they're trying to emulate, you know, whoever. It doesn't matter. But they can accidentally find their own voice that way. And I think that's fantastic. And that's what I love about it. Agreed. Agreed. That's why I've got no. I pick no beef. I have no beef. Mostly, as you said, like over the. Over the the past few months, there has been a flood of yes, new podcasts, and I'm easy to find. So I think I've had an awful <laughs> lot of requests. And I and I, what I tell people is, great, congratulations. Do ten episodes, yeah, and come back to me, and we can just we can talk about it. You know. Anyway, yeah, yeah, I, I don't mean, mean you, to, I don't mean that. This is sidebar. I mean, no, it's not no, that it's, important. It, it, I'm just. It, it, it's valid and it's interesting. I mean, for the record, you're episode 209, you know, like, if, I know that yeah. <laughs> I was just, I'm familiar. I understand that you're, you're not a newbie. I understand that for sure. But, but I will say last thing on this, from my perspective, I'll give almost any podcast, like an episode or two <laughs> within reason. There's like some caveats there. And the reason why is because sometimes stuff is just, Oh, this is interesting. I haven't heard this before. And it means I listen to a lot of podcasts that are like mediocre. And then when I've ramped up, what I what I do here and started doing like you know five six episodes a week and things along those lines maybe I've kind of fallen off on that but there is really cool and special stuff going on and it, it is boundaryless and sometimes directionless unfortunately but there is some really cool stuff out there and some of the best things are the hyper niche I mean this is a niche show if you think about it from a certain like larger culture like Alfanzians again you point out that there were certain right. zines that would like be hyper-focused on, like, one thing or, like, one specific part of the scene or one style of music or this and that and turn down people on this show before because, for me, the criteria has to be I'm interested in what you do. If I'm not interested in what somebody does, why the hell would I want to talk to them? That's where I'm coming from because that's where the secret of this show is of whatever makes this, like, worth people paying attention to. That's that's my thing. I don't know what everyone else's thing is and it almost doesn't matter because, you know, it, it doesn't matter how somebody makes the soup if the soup's good. But there's a lot mm-hmm. of soup out there, for sure. I mean, what I find interesting, and this is something that I've sort of thought about, and this is more specifically about the kind of podcast that is sort of come in the, follow the footsteps of the serial 
podcast, um, which I think also had an enormous impact. And what I find interesting, I actually just was listening to, I I actually couldn't finish it, but it was a um, Washington Post had a a series called Canary, which was a kind of an interesting story. But I realized that it was stretched out over seven episodes and it's probably a story that I could have sat and read in a, like an hour. You know, and, <laughs> With your investment you know, and of time like, being like, yeah, far less. Sure. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. And I, and I, but I, I think that I was thinking about the kind of what happens is they, they, when, and this is not specific to their particular podcast, but just in general, that those kind of series that they already know the result. So then it's actually super scripted and processed, like how they, you know, they have like, you know, they always leave teasers and like in the next podcast, you'll learn this, whatever. And, and I find it, they actually, I think they slow things down or they have these sort of circuitous, almost deliberate circuitous routes that are unnecessary. Tease it um, out almost and, kind of like give, give it more. Right, or, uh, but yeah. even sometimes are literally are just deliberately diversionary just to <laughs> kind of, and, and because they're trying to figure out what to do with this time. And, it's funny that people, but I think also this has to do with, like, I don't like things in my ears. Like, I'm putting some, I have some things in my ears at the moment mm-hmm. because I'm doing a podcast with and you. And, and, the, I don't want, and the sound is great, and I thank you for that because it's... Yeah, I have to say, I cannot stand the sound of people, like the, when I hear a lot of podcasts now, the way people sound uh, on the various mediums that they use, the formats they use, digital stuff... I've, it's they're they are missing certain harmonics which I equate yeah. with humanity yes, and it I drives agree. just drives me crazy. But anyway, I, the point I was making is that I'm wearing these things in my ears at the moment because I don't want the sound like your voice to bleed into my microphone. But by and large, I don't like like walking around with something in my ears, and I think that I'm I'm an exception at this point. And I think that so for a lot of people that kind of elongation of time is actually is useful for them um, because they're, they can just go walking with things in their ears or, the, or whatever they do. I'm, I, you know, I think for me, if I listen to um, something, usually I'll be sitting, you know, I'll be at my desk, I'll be working. And I think that's where I think, God, this is taking forever. I can't stick, sit around for that. I have other things I have to turn to anyway let's let's get off this stupid conversation let's move on to something else no, no. <laughs> well and, and the, so last thing on that because i think it's interesting you know a lot of people listen there's not much commuting going on right now but you know listening while commuting like you're riding a train or something along those lines that you know it's great for that some people say like washing the dishes or like doing the laundry like mundane activities but it's it also depends on how you listen too because I, I feel like some shows require more of an emotional investment maybe or or more of your active attention rather than just having to be a thing that's on that you're like listening to and and for something like what you're talking about which is almost like from the almost like a audio version of you know what 60 minutes used to do or something along those lines like here's the piece and there's going to be a beat to it and like it's going to like you know take you this place and that place that is an echelon of podcasts that some of it's pretty cool, but I agree with you. Sometimes it's like, man, you could have done this in like one episode and you did it in three, and I'm not sure why you did that. And but the thing is, I do know why because you know maybe they're getting sponsorship or something along those lines. Right. There's always there's right. other other things involved. Anyway, podcasts, am I right? Right. 
you know, I wanted to. I was I was listening to the Kariki record earlier today, and congratulations on on getting that out, by the way. Uh, right. Thank you. Um, it, it was a very weird time to be releasing a record, <laughs> to, to be sure. Yeah. yeah, when we were, yeah, it's, I mean, it, everything shut down. I think it was a two weeks before our release date, and the way we actually Discord operates, you know, we ship the records out two weeks ahead of a release date, and it was truly a last-minute decision because it, I realized, you know, San Francisco shut down on the whatever day that was, it was a Monday, and um, it's one of our sort of our primary distributor is. Uh, and it just suddenly occurred to me if we ship these records out, um, they may land at stores that are closed, right. um, which is a problem. Yeah, or they may, be able to receive. they may actually make it to the store. They might show up at stores before they close, which is an even bigger problem. Yeah. And it just seemed like at that moment, like let's stop. Let's just hold. We don't. We don't care. We're not in any hurry. We've you know we've been playing music for years and years together, and. It didn't really matter to us. We didn't have a tour plan. There was no, it didn't really, we just wanted to get the music out there. But we also felt like it would be really unfair. Like we could have just gone straight to mail order and straight to, you know, we could have done some direct stores if those are open. Um, or we could have just gone digital. But it seemed really unfair to the shops and the distributors. So. Well, you're supporting the ecosystem, right? Because, I mean, when I look at right. quote unquote punk rock, whatever that means, I always think about in terms of, of how you conduct yourself and how you conduct yourself as a band and, and what you choose to put your emphasis on. And by allowing, allowing, by, by, by including uh, record stores, uh, you know, mom and pop retailers, things along those lines, you're making a choice that like you believe that this is part of a greater whole and you would like to include this into it. And I think that's something that there's a lot of ways to approach that topic, but it's something that seems to be a through line, uh, you know, certainly with everything in discord, but uh, indeed with, with all your bands. I mean, that's, that's a choice. <laughs> it's, not the, it's not a matter. It's not a matter of, it's not that I believe that I know that. Right. Exactly. Like, I yeah, know, it's a truth. Right. So it's like, <laughs> right. So for me, I know that there's a, like I'm a part of a whole and, and that I'm really, it's not, it's not a matter of dependency either. It's a matter, what, if I'm dependent on it, I'm dependent on the idea that there are people who are trying to do good things, and I want to be a part of those people. I want to be doing that work with them, whether I know them or not. You know, it isn't. It's not. It's not a matter of, you know, I don't. I don't know the people necessarily personally, but I do think that when it comes to underground or independent music or art or whatever, any format, any expression or anything for that matter, if people have a good idea and they're just trying to do something for like the goodness of it, I would like to be supportive of that. And I think that anybody who opens a record shop now, it's not about making money. That's for sure. It's a lifestyle choice yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. It's, well, yeah, or, but it's, it's like a, it's a, it's a belief. It's like yeah. for them, it's something that's important to them. It's a, there's something deeper. I don't like the word lifestyle, but I hear, I, I, I think it was a semantic issue. Like I think of it as like people who have a relationship with music or records, there's something really deeply foundational for them in that. And they, so it's like somebody who opens a, a bookstore or a coin shop or a, yeah. there's just something about them that I really, I respect. I'm not a record collector, but I really respect people who know their records, who really get in, get in there. And I think, you no, know, I just, I love that form, you know. 
So yeah, and I think you're you're onto something with that. And I was actually talking last night with uh, Chris Murphy of Sloan, who says hi, by the way. Good regards. <laughs> and we were talking about something very similar uh, along those lines of that being something where you know it means it means a lot to the people that it means a lot to, and that's something that should right. never be discounted or you know even really ridiculed. I don't think because I mean I think it's something I more, totally agree. Yeah, you know it's I important. Totally, agree. of course. And so. I, Oh, I was just gonna say, I just admire that you know the, the ethos of, of you know not only acknowledging that but actively supporting it because because you know that even if even if you don't personally know these folks that run these record stores, there, there's a certain commonality of interest and you know assurance that like the level of effort that they're putting into something is for, for sure a labor of love at this certainly at this point in the year 2020. Right, right, I agree. And, exactly, and it's an awesome record. So the whole the thing, yeah, you end up delaying it because you didn't know, hey, are they even going to be able to get these? Like, what's going? And this is before the postal service was under attack, <laughs> under right. active attack. So it's like, all right, great. Yeah. Uh, you know, from a non-logistical standpoint, I I think the record's great, and it's it's going to be something where you know Joe's covering the low end. You're not having to cover the low end like you, like you do in even. So did when you were writing the songs, was that process much different? Yeah, I mean, the thing, when Amy and I were doing the evens, first of all, I played a baritone guitar, which is not a guitar. It's a different kind of instrument. And one aspect of a baritone is that there's almost no sustain whatsoever. So it's a a little bit more like a banjo. You have to play, you have to continue to strum it. And um, it's, it's interesting because in Fugazi, you know, I played a guitar through, you know, typically through a Marshall and loud and with some overdrive. So there's a lot of sustain and, mm-hmm. and uh, you could hold a note, for, you know, I could hold feedback notes for, you know, 10 minutes if I wanted. And then when I started playing the baritone, I found I had to change the way I played because really I, you know, if you don't pedal, you fall over. Yeah. It's just like that. It's not, there's no, it's a little bit like a fixed gear bike or something. Yeah. You there's no coverage. Keep, there's no, <laughs> right. You just have <laughs> you to keep go. playing. And so, right. And also, you know, it's like I so I really developed a new style of playing with the baritone, um, which actually I've, it's been difficult for me to disabuse myself of that style because <laughs> you got to learn what you the, the, the constantly yeah, going it's right? really because yeah. <laughs> that's how I've been writing. But the thing about playing with the evens, Amy and I, you know, really, you know, when you're a two piece, the the conversation is really. It's just between the two of you, the musical conversation. And if you're in a, say, a conversation and you stop talking or, or whatever, then everything breaks down. So, for instance, in this podcast, if I was to suddenly stop talking, things would get very weird, right? <laughs> yes, they would. But, right. So, if, but on the other hand, if you're interviewing two people and one person stops talking, it continues. And I think that what I started to feel was in the evens, um, there was an aspect of the playing that I love playing with Amy and we, and you know, we, we've played so much together, uh, but there was in terms of the shows, um, they started to feel like recitals. I think people, the relationship I was feeling with the audience, I didn't get a sense that they were, I don't know. I just felt weird. I couldn't. And also I, if you, if you stopped playing, then everything would just sort of fall apart, crumble. There was, yeah. yeah and it just, seemed, <laughs> so really there was like this much more, kind of rigor to the kind of what the performances were and and i thought i i think that you know i talked to amy i said i think i really want to play with somebody else so there's a little more of a musical conversation going on because um 
the conversation was a little bit limited by the fact we are a two piece. And, um, so then, you know, Joe was living in Italy. Now he, we had played with Joe before he went off to Italy. He left for Italy in 2007. We had played with him prior to that. Just, you know, just playing music. One thing about me, I have to say that people often say like, for the years that I wasn't gigging, they'd say, you really should be playing music. And I'm like, I am fucking playing music. <laughs> yeah, just because you're not seen it, dude, doesn't mean play. it's... I've yeah. never stopped, yeah. I've never stopped playing music ever. I play and play and play and play. And in some ways, that's the point. It's That's the richness of it. So then Joe went off to Italy, and Amy and I were doing the even stuff. And then after 2013, you know, we stopped gigging as the evens. And we played with this guy, Mark Cisneros. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. His bands are great. Yeah, he's a great human being and a brilliant player, and we had a really nice time playing with him. Uh, he was in a ton of bands, and it just was—I mean, we just weren't moving at the same pace. Like we had a, you know, we had a little kid. Our son was born in 2008, so we weren't going to be doing any kind of touring or anything like that. Joe came back in 2015. He moved back to Washington, and so we had him sit in, um, and that was really. It was interesting. I was playing baritone and he was playing bass and Amy was drumming and we were playing away. And then one day Joe said, you know, I got the low end covered. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> and then he said, also, Joe, which is great. He said, I'm not sitting down. Right. <laughs> the in the evens. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Then it, occurred to me, it suddenly occurred to me. Oh, I guess I'm going to stand up and play guitar now. The, the engagement is different, right? Like it, right. it's less and of the, as you mentioned, recital energy and like has more of a, has a different feel that way. Right. But although I have to say that my decision to sit down was really like, it was carefully thought. Like I knew that playing with Amy, that people would assume that it was like a solo project and she was my drummer. Right. So that just comes with the territory. So by sitting I put myself literally on the same plane as her. Yeah. So that we were both sitting. So that removed the sort of visual aspect of this idea of her being my a backup drummer, somebody drumming yeah, one for being me. higher than the other. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing, the other thought was that in rock and roll, unlike jazz and other blues and so forth, there's a there's a um, tendency for as artists get older to they either go into one direction or the other. One direction is they try to continue to be act young and try to compete with young bands and do, you know, and still get out there and rock and roll and dress, you know, like, you know, do that thing. Or they wear like they you know, they wear the jackets but with no ties. Drapings of youth or <laughs> youth culture. Right. Yeah. Right. Either they do that or they or they do this other like you know, well, now I'm, I'm an older man, so I'm wearing like a suit jacket, but I don't wear a tie. And I'm and they it's like that that kind of approach. And neither one of those things was interesting to me at all. And I thought how strange it was that, you know, it's it's in jazz. You could see an 80 year old player and think, well, right on. And you could and, and in blues, you could see an 80 year old player and think right on. But with rock and roll, it seemed less it just seemed ungainly the way people were approaching it. And I thought, well, fuck that. I'm going to, I'm a long distance runner. I'm going to the end. So I'm going to sit down now. So later on, <laughs> you can later, on <laughs> later on, when I have to sit down, 
people right. won't go like, like, like I don't want to be, I don't want to be sitting down because I've got to a point where I can't stand up. I figure if I sit down now, it'll war- it'll give people some indication. Also, it's good practice for me to figure out how am I going to work it from a chair. It was very interesting, and and I don't have any, you know, I I, st- I actually practice sitting down still, but I don't mind standing up too. It doesn't matter. I think the other thing is that being in Fugazi, standing up, you have a tendency to start kind of rocking out or jumping around it's just it's like ingrained in you and and i started to feel like well i understand that energy but i also want to like i want to figure out other ways to present this stuff since at some point i won't be able to stand up that's my guess right it's not the only way that you can express that uh physicality there's there's other ways to do it and you know certainly there's precedent for other performers that have done that whether or not they're you know from the the rock idiom or like you know whatever post-punk whatever you want whatever you people deign to call it like did you ever i I know you're not a big social media guy which is a whole conversation of itself but there there was that meme that floated around a couple years with you and henry rollins it said punk isn't dead it just goes to bed at a more reasonable hour is that something that you're aware of are you aware of this thing yeah yeah i mean i i people i i have zero social media but people make sure that i see things like that (laughs) people always send it to me you know that thing is circles i can't believe how much that thing is circled around it's it's had uh, in meme time, I think it has had at least seven or eight lifetimes. Uh, <laughs> because, right. But it's, but it's something where it's a truism because if you have people that they're uh, the ethos of, of punk rock is part of their life and they have you know grown up with this music, everybody's getting older, you know. So it's something. Yeah, that, but like, here's the, here's the thing about that. To. But how, how do you feel? I mean, about I, that? yeah, I get what I feel about that is like it's it's like it's so cliche and so yeah. like to me like <laughs> just so generic. Like oh look, they're you know I've. There's so many things that I see um, where people just – I find it startling that people are amused by things, honestly, because so much of these things, I think, like, it's so generic and ridiculous. Here's – like, for instance, it's true. Like, I go to bed maybe around midnight right now. I used to go to bed, say, at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. Yeah. But let me tell you something. I go to bed at 4 a.m., and I would sleep till noon. And now I go to bed at say twelve, and I'll get up at five. Right. So, so I fucking work my ass off. Yeah, it's not like you're working less. It's just that the so hours like, have so changed. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's like I just think this the notion of, but whatever. I mean, also, you know, people often talk about being old. Like we're so old. I am not interested in that conversation at all. Here's the way I look at it: If you're hungry, eat some food. If you're tired take a nap right you know if you're fucking if you're if you're cold get a jacket you know if you're hot take your jacket off but you can't do shit about being old so shut the fuck up (laughs) well yes are just wait all you gotta do all you have to do every day is wake up that's all you gotta do and then we just are i didn't choose to be born when i was born i just was born in 1962 so that means that I've done 58 spins, right? And I'll be it'll be 59 spins in April. But there's what? Could, I mean, I, I, I there's nothing I can do about it. I remember when our son was born. I was 46 years old. And people said you're a little bit, a little old, kind of an older dad. That you're a little old to be having a kid. I go, I can't be any younger. <laughs> so no, what are you meant to do com- about it exactly? <laughs> right. So I feel like this conversation about age, this has to do with people's fear. Yeah. Of mortality, and I'm not interested in that. I find it pointless. Death is the second most natural thing in life. 
it's okay. Let's live. Let's just fucking yeah. live our lives. Let's not sit around and ruminate about being old. Who cares? Do something with your fucking life. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's a good way to look at it. I think it's the only sane way to look at it. Um, you know, there, there's there's a lot of death in this world you know just even speaking personally i've had some tragedy as many have over, over the past year uh and you know it's not gonna stop <laughs> people people are gonna keep dying and it's 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 not necessarily right, but, it didn't, but it didn't start this year no 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 exactly that didn't start in 2020 no matter how many <laughs> how much people may loathe this specific year like people people right. are gonna I die mean, man people are gonna die yeah i mean that's part of the deal you know but that's what can we do I mean, it's that. I mean, I feel like, in many ways, like my in my work, and in my songs and my ideas, I have really, I'm, I've tried to encourage people to take care of themselves, yeah. to take to to go the distance. You know, like I understand that it lights out that comes, the dirt nap always comes, but I always feel like, while you're here love it and enjoy it and don't don't hasten your departure i don't under that part i don't understand but it doesn't mean i'm not mad at those people i just i'm just saying that in my life i've tried to really like with my work i've tried to promote the idea that that maybe we should be happy because it's worth sticking around for yeah it's worth the investment of energy and, yeah. and the investment of time now, i completely agree with that and that's uh well and that's a choice too. And I think that sure. pe people feel, yeah. uh, especially in these days, feel robbed of their autonomy and, and robbed of their power uh, for various reasons, both real and imagined. But I think that, you know, there is a certain mindset that says, like, well, you can also make a choice for what you do and don't enter. It doesn't mean that you're going to be immune to outside forces. But, uh, you know, th there is there are many things that you can do. And some of that is just literally your own attitude. I mean, I would say it starts with that. So, I mean, I feel like that the, I mean, the situation in the world and in our society is very much like the weather. And there's not a lot we can do about it. We can fulminate, you know, and we can agonize, or we can think of ways to navigate it. And you know, I used to say it's you know it's the weather. If it's raining, get an umbrella. You know, just, I don't know what to do. Like you can respond in some way. <laughs> right. You can res you can respond, but like the situation, you know, the current sort of situation. I don't. I mean, you know, I'll vote, but I don't. You know, I don't really feel like I have. I don't really have any. I'll wear a mask and I'll vote, but I don't think I have any more. I don't have any control over the situation. I can only navigate it as it as it. As it appears, and you know, you you're in California, correct? Well, so, I was, like, I'm, with, I'm in Milwaukee now, so I moved to. All right. Wisconsin, well, the, so when you were in California, <laughs> but, all right. So when you were in California, but, but when you were in California, you know, the the, the state was burning, of right? Course. Yeah, yeah. And, right, and and what can you do about that? Yeah. Like, what can be done? Like, what action could you do? And and I feel like so then you think, all right, well, how do we navigate it? If there's a hurricane coming, if you live in say Louisiana and you're some bearing down on you, I mean, you can be miserable or you can get the fuck out of the way. You know, it's like, I don't know. I just feel like that you have, we have to accept that some of these things, though we may feel that they're in somebody's control, they're not certainly not in our control. 
So what what we do have power over is how we navigate, how we how we feel, and, and the way we look after the other people around us. One thing, and, and I have so much that, that I want to get to you, but I think you're onto something interesting. I don't want to lose this. That as someone that doesn't participate in social media, something that I've noticed and that has actually come up as a topic on this show is that social media has connected people in a lot of ways, but not necessarily in ways that are helpful for folks' psyche. You know, I'm talking about like relativized experiences being, you know, it's not that tra- more tragedies are occurring, but awareness of every tragedy and awareness of of injustice uh, makes it so that if you don't provide your own filters, there's a constant stream of it. So if you notice that the, the world at large, meaning friends, compatriots, acquaintances, et cetera, et cetera, have you noticed a change in how people uh, behave and react to the world uh, in a larger force? Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I have talked, spoken with, re- in even recent weeks, with a number of people who are having serious um, psychological problems, yeah. and that's kind of what um, I was driving at. Is, is, is and yeah. and and every one of those people has the toxic pocket bomb going off with nothing but bad news all the time. The bad news machine, um, yeah. <laughs> right? And I don't, and I, and and the the thing is, of course, I I'm not minimizing the stuff that's going on. Uh, but I also want to point out that terrible things have been going on all along. For instance, here's a, here's a, here's a, a fact that I came across, which I thought was pretty incredible, which was in the last, say, 20 years, how many domestic bombings do you think there have been? I mean, I would, I would imagine hundreds. Can you think of hundreds of domestic? I'm talking about USA. You're talking about on U.S. soil. Yeah, bombings, domestic, like pe- oh, Americans. I see what you're d- saying. Domestic right, terrorism, like people bombing here for the last 20 years. So, like the Boston Marathon bomb is right, one. Okay. So, yeah, maybe maybe you a dozen. You know, maybe two dozen, perhaps. Like as far as notable. That's a maybe, right? Right. Exactly. And that, and that's not right. counting shootings. So, that's specifically bombings. So, right. I'm talking about yeah. specifically bombings. Oklahoma City. There was a yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. I see what you're going. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, but, but I'm saying in 1973 there was 1,200 bombing. I think there was something like over a thousand in one year. Now most of those were property bombings. It was like the Weather Underground and yeah. the SLA and the FLMN. But there was a lot of a lot of chaos and people. My mom, you know, she told me that 1968 was one of the most terrifying years ever, although not as terrifying as 1962 in the Bay of Pigs, right. where they really thought, you know, living in Washington D.C., there was curtains. So the point is that there's terrible things that happen in the world, and there's always been terrible things that have happened in the world, but for the most part. There are not t- most people are not engaging in terrible things, and if you can focus solely right. on, if you're focusing solely on all the horrible things that are happening, then you're not then you're kind of cheating yourself out of goodness. I'll give you an ex- here's a story that's sort of a parallel story. When we did the Fugazi movie, the instrument movie, great doc, great movie. Uh, Thank I, you. I have a, I have a so, physical copy of it. <laughs> okay, so we really. Like when we, we really, we said to Jem Cohen, the director, we said, listen, we really want to make sure that the audience, like the people who come to see the shows are in this movie. And 
he took it upon himself to go out and basically go up and down the line of people waiting to get in and just ask questions. So there's a lot of interviews. Finding out people, about the people going to the shows that are part of the Right, so he's just yeah. talking to them. So, so, we, so he had hours of people talking. And so we were with him working on an edit of, for those things, editing the thing. And our, like, we put together this reel of the people being interviewed where everything they said was really negative. Like one guy said he wanted to kill me and somebody like, they're assholes. And everyone just said like, I think they suck. And just, you know, and, but that's the Fugazi humor is like, we were like, we just want to put, have everybody just saying nasty things about us. <laughs> just, just the harshest right. critiques ever. <laughs> right. And it was just so Cause it'd be absurd. funny. Like, Cause yeah, you think of a documentary they're They usually put in the most glowing kind of, right. they changed my life, blah, blah, blah. And just but have like just, people trash talking. We, we found, we found those people, like we found them funny. And, but then Jim said, listen, I get it. He said, but, and we can put some of that stuff in there. He says, but it's not true. He says, people yeah. love your band. And you can't, if you don't put that in there, then you're, you're skewing the truth of the matter. And that's this in the same light. If you're going to mm. think about, you want to put your mind to the terrible things that have happened, um, that have always been happening and that are still happening and now are being even more brought to the fore, um, then try also to take into account like all the incredible stuff that's happened, all the incredible activism that's been going on, all the, like the people who work for mutual aid and think right. about I mean, all this incredible community that's been going on. Think about the fact that, you know, we're for fate, you know, we have a, a, a country or a world faced with like a very mysterious disease and people fucking wear masks and really do like, try to be respectful of each other's space and can, and not maybe not everybody, but most every motherfucking person is like, I don't, I haven't run into a lot of people who are like, you know, totally against it. You know, most people are yeah. totally fine. And I, and I, and honestly, you know, I, I've been like in the evening, we'll go over to a park here in DC and there'll be like 150 people sitting in the park, having dinner in the evening and I think like, well, this is nice. Something I'd never seen before. I've been going to that park for, you know, decades and never seen that many people coming out. So there's always something. I feel like I always feel like I'm encouraged. And I feel like that and, and the word encourage is important because it gives me courage. Right. It's in the word. Right. <laughs> but I'm not discouraged. Yeah. When you're discouraged, you lose courage. And the courage is what we need to go forward. We always get through this shit. No, I understand it's, a lot of people have been sick and a lot of people have died. And unfortunately, because of the nature of this, of the kind of, I think social media plays a huge role in this, but the kind of stress that people are feeling for people who are struggling, who are already struggling, it kind of, it puts them over the edge. The situation with the administration, I think it really for people who are already struggling um, with their sense of place or reality, um, being in an environment where this kind of behavior is coming from the president of the United States, uh, it really tends to send them over the edge. And yes, we, we've I, there's been quite a few people I know um, who could not make it, and they've they've they decided to leave early, which is a shame. And it's bizarre to think 
that these fucking assholes could have created a, a situation in which uh, it would do so much psychic damage. But, you know, the government, I mean, I, I said someone was complaining about the other day and I said, I mean, I said, hey, you know, remember? We're punks. Government sucks. We knew that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is not a new, <laughs> right. a new not a new thing. Yeah. So I, you know, but, but also it's weird because I think that the other thing is that you know people who are my peers and even people who are not exactly my peers, but even ten years behind me, they're, you know, people, they're long in the tooth, and the problems they str- they struggle with when they are teenagers. They can't deal with them anymore after a while. You know, it's like it's so. It does, I was actually just talking to a friend about this earlier. That, you know, as you, you know, one thing about in my mind the, by the punk community, that the punk punk rock really or whatever you want to call it, the people I know, the one commonality was a sense of marginalization mm-hmm. that you didn't fit for whatever reason, but then you found a like a click or a scene or whatever in which your oddities or your, you know, your malformation was okay. Um, The things that would make you an outlier or unwelcome in an outside community are actually considered assets. Right. Right. Or, or you're just accepted for having whatever you're fine. Even if you're a little crazy, like, there are a lot of people in the early DC punk scene who were genuinely crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, they're just crazy people. And, but that was okay because they were people and that's what we saw and we loved them. And then after, you know, at some point it's just natural that the kind of hub of that community, which was really, you know, lasted for, you know, much longer than most scenes, that actual hive of activity, eventually people, went off, you know, because orbits change. And some of the people who really struggled when they were younger, but were sort of um, aided by the, by the hive, you know, the, um, or whatever you want to call it, the the support system. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They found themselves, you know, without that. And I think that made it very difficult for them is, but it's, but then, and someone said, "What's so sad?" I go, "Well, yeah, but it's not sad that that they felt like they were a part of something when they did." Right, and that's not something that could ever be taken away. And and I right. think that's that's kind of th- that's an untold story of the culture of DIY punk, whatever you want to call it. That you know, I think people know when you're in it, but I don't see th- those stories aren't usually told from a greater perspective. One minor note, I want to say that. I agree with you in metropolitan areas that you see people masking up and and having empathy for their fellow person. I will say, living in Wisconsin now, Mm -hmm. go out to the rural areas and you see a whole lot of chosen facts folks just running around that, you know, aren't masking up. Maybe they're like being jerks about it. They do exist and they are out there. Uh, I don't doubt it. I don't. I don't doubt that. I mean, it's the same way. It sucks. I don't. I wish it wasn't the case. I I hate it. But but I think I gotta say. Those people, it's like, they're people and they've got their own, they got their, they have their belief systems and I, I can't, they have I their own I'm race not, to run. Right. I'm just not in, <laughs> I, but I'm also just not into, I'm just not into hatred. I don't, yeah. people are so like when, <laughs> when this guy got elected, somebody voted for him, you know, and, and they, and those people, they're not. I just I just don't agree with this idea that they're all hateful idiots. They're human beings well, th- yeah, who have right. they have their, another belief system 
on some things, but like I, I feel like that the kind of the bifurcation, the binary aspect, I find it ridiculous. And I'm especially I'm especially surprised when people who I think of as being very thoughtful and like being very you know progressive are just filled with so much hatred about other people's other other people's thinking. And I think if that's the case, well, we'll never solve the problem. You know, you can't. Someone's got to give. Right. Well, well, and and that's it's interesting you bring that up because I think that's part of how these folks kind of came to be how they are is that it's just idea like the identity built around like I whatever these people are for I am against and I define myself by that and then it's like okay well the way you solve that isn't it it, it both isn't doing the same thing. <laughs> but saying that it's logically based and means smug about it, but it also isn't ruinous empathy towards people that are just dicks too. I mean, there's still people, but it doesn't mean you have to ruin yourself trying to quote unquote understand them or or whatever. Like I think there's a fine there's a fine line between all of it. But I I I have seen the exact behavior you're talking about where it's like people like I fundamentally agree with you on almost everything, but you're being a real dismissive jerk right now. But here's the, like for instance, in the early '80s in the American punk scene, there was a, by 1983 and certainly by 84, there was an explosion of skinheads that came through the scene. Almost every large scene had a skinhead contingent. Um, and they, they were around for a decade and they were very problematic. And they were in most places, they were white power skinheads. Uh, in some cities where that would not fly, they were just nationalist skinheads. So, for instance, in D.C., there was a pretty strong skinhead contingent, and they would never identify as white power because that just wouldn't fly here um, because they would just get their asses kicked. But but they were nationalists, so they found other things. Like they were always beating up kids because they had red shoelaces or something, you know, because that was the communist color. Um, and there was a lot of gnashing of teeth from the punk people who were in the punk scene who were not skinheads about what to do about this visitation like that these suddenly there's like this bloom of this behavior and they were these guys were violent um rea- they're reactionary they lived to um you know they came to shows just to fight that was their that was their reason to exist and there were some people who felt like i'm getting out of here and they would just quit punk because that's how they wanted to deal with it. And then there was other people who thought, fuck that. We're going to fight them. We're going to fight them. And, um, that's unsustainable, right? Because, you know, I always say like, you know, assholes are like viruses. No, you can kill one, but there's just going to be another one. So what, so what are you going to do? Like it's like at some point, like you can't kill every asshole. It would be impossible. They just pop up in some other form later on. My feeling was, figure out their names try to understand they say okay these are people and then care just create something that they're not interested in and carry on just keep working that they will they will neutralize themselves because the life they've chosen is unsustainable and that's kind of what happened hmm so you know how i actually wanted to start off this whole thing was i wanted to talk to you about guitar uh, I know we talked a little bit about the baritone in the evens and whatnot but I kind of am curious about you got a very distinctive style it's often imitated in some manner but 
I, you played bass in uh, Teen Idols, if I remember correctly, right? And Correct. then, and then uh, Minor Threat, you were you were the singer. But had you been playing guitar like the entire time? Was it something you picked up seriously later? Like what what was the impetus for? I played piano when I was a kid. Okay. I don't remember a time where I didn't play piano. Um, and then when I wanted to be in a rock band, I didn't want to play piano because it just seemed not very rock and roll to me. So I thought, I thought I'd play guitar, but I couldn't understand a guitar at all. It didn't make any sense to me because I only understood music as from as playing from a piano. I didn't really understand it beyond that. So I couldn't understand how the neck of the guitar, how those notes corresponded to the keyboard. The key, A piano keyboard is fixed. There's like basically one there's like one middle C, but like, you know, you know, there's one of each note, whereas on a guitar, there might be two or three on one note on different strings, depending on where you, you know, how you play it. I didn't understand that at all. Um, and besides it was so I, none of my, my family were not musicians. My parents didn't really play anything. And I don't come from a musical background. I just was obsessed with music my whole life. And so did you have a piano? Like, how did you, how were you playing the piano? Oh yeah, my mom one? played, my mom played piano. Okay. She could cite, she could read music, um, but she couldn't play by ear and she didn't really play. I mean, she played once in a while. Was it I, just like around the house? Like, is it, yeah, yeah, literally. Yeah. It's a thing that things like the books were stacked on. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I, you know, I took some piano lessons early on. Um, and then I took a, some sort of more serious lessons and they were, put me i stopped playing piano because i just didn't agree with the notion of formal music i just quit and i stopped for a couple of years because i was so put off by the prof teacher at the time he's a nice guy i just didn't like i just didn't relate to the idea of music being a formal thing i just didn't believe it at the time and i stopped altogether i dropped piano was it his approach or was it just like the general Feel it was the notion. I mean, I can tell you that I I had written a bunch of songs as a like before I I went you know, I just they're simple, very rudimentary songs. I'd written them, and then as when I went to go like the first day I went to go see this guy, this actual real piano teacher professor guy. You know, he asked me to play him some songs, and I played him my songs, and he said that's nice. It's it's not piano, but it's nice, and. <laughs> Um, and I thought it was a strange thing to say since yeah. I was sitting at a fucking piano. Um, but, um, but I understood that the piano he referred to had a capital P in front of it. And the piano I was sitting at had a lowercase p at the front of it. Um, so I tried to understand what he was talking about. And I tried to learn piano um, and a more formal, this approaching it as a more formal thing, like an actual, like, you know, a degree worthy thing, um, uh, a, a certified art as opposed to just art. And it made me not want to play anymore. So I quit. Uh, and then I wanted to be, you know, be in a band, but I couldn't even begin to figure out how to play guitar. So I just gave up and I became a skateboarder, but then punk came along, uh, and it just so utterly blew my mind. And when I saw the cramps, I thought, oh, I want to fucking play music. And I, I want to do like, I'll, th there's no rules anymore. So I'm going to do it. So I just, I played bass because I could figure out one string. 
that wasn't too hard. <laughs> right, it's a, it's a lot easier to figure out. Um, there's less, there's less and then, you know, and then at some point I started to understand the relationship between two of the strings and then three of the strings. Uh, and I think Meyer Threat started playing and I believe, I don't know what year, probably 81, Brian Baker, the bass player of Meyer Threat, sold me an acoustic guitar. Um, and I started writing music on that just playing, but I played the guitar kind of like a bass, really. Um, and then I just kept, you know, I just kept playing. And then it wasn't until really the first time I, I think I played guitar that was on a record was Egg Hunt. Egg Hunt, yeah, 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 which I have that seven inch. That's an iconic. <laughs> right, that was 80, and that was in 86. That was with Jeff, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. But I've been playing guitar in the basement for years at that point, just kicking your, around ideas for yourself to get ideas not like playing in a band but like playing 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 music yeah. i always have played music um and then you know i really i think i was an embrace and that you know that i didn't play guitar in that band um and that was a frustrating band uh How's that? we only played nine, we only played nine shows because it was just it was, we were breaking up from the moment we formed. You know? Oh, I get you. Okay, sure. And it was just just not a not a comfortable fit. And um, but then we um, but then you know I I said I'm not. I think the mistake we made we all wanted to be in a band. And I and I realized the correction for me was that I wanted to play music, and that if I got with people who wanted to play music, eventually we might form a band. So I started playing with Joe Lally and. You know, I wanted to play guitar, and he was going to play bass. He was playing bass, and we just started playing together. And we got we played with another drummer, this guy Colin Sears, and we told Colin we're not forming a band, we're just playing music. And then he played for six months or so, and then he left to go rejoin Dag Nasty. And then, you know, Brendan, of course, I know, I mean, I knew everybody, and Brendan practiced here at Discord House. So I said, "Do you want to sit in with us? We're not forming a band. We're just playing music." Um, but I just kept playing, playing guitar and just kept my chops up. I never took a guitar lesson. I don't know. I, you know, it's all, I just taught myself how to play and we just try uh, to make sounds that you like it. I mean, what was, yeah, I've always just, I've always just, no matter what I do, any instrument or anything I do, I just try to find something that f sounds good to me. And then I just follow the thread. I always tell people who are trying to learn an instrument, I said, just fucking play it. Right. And when you think something sounds good, do it again and 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 do it again. Then a third note will show up and do that. And then you keep playing those three and then a fourth note will show up. You just got, it's like really it's, it's going into the middle of the music and, you know, to go into the sound and, and just let your, and then feel free to, to go what, to where you think is right. That that's all Let it, let it, just follow it. And that's how I write anyway. Um, so I, I'm and, interested in your distinction between, because I think this is interesting, the playing music versus, uh, you know, starting a band, being in a band. I forget what, what, what the exact phrase was, but how do you, how do you divide that line? Is it like putting I the cart what, before the horse? Like, what, what do you mean with that? Well, I think if you're forming a band, I think by definition, a band's, a band is to play shows. Right, that's sort of the idea. In yeah, other words, you're from our world. Right. Yeah, yeah, of course. But if you're playing music, um, you're literally just making music with people. That's all. You're just playing, and you're not. Okay. There's no goal. Like I'm not a goal-oriented person. 
<laughs> gotcha. Okay. Like, you know, people like I actually don't think about the future. I'm not. I don't. I. I don't. I'm not thinking about the past. Like I'm aware of the past. I'm interested in the past because it's very interesting to think about um, from this from this view. Um, but I'm not obsessed with it. I'm certainly not nostalgic. Uh, well, then how do you I, reconcile that with the? Because you. And I'm glad you did, but like when you released like the demos, like of, of those those days you're talking about, it, it was fascinating. It's really interesting. It's actually a good example. Yeah, of, but that's not a nostalgic thing, right? But it, I mean, were you looking at it from the perspective of like? I mean, I was in the perspective as a fan. Like I, yeah, because it's cool. It's interesting, right? Would, so I like you know, like for instance, you know, I there's a lot of bands, music musicians who I truly love and have meant the world to me, and. Occasionally, I'll come across so they'll put out something like an early demo or something. I go, that's fascinating, and I figured, you know, we're not promoting it as anything other than here. If you're interested, here it is. You know, it's like we're sharing something, and we thought we'll make it sound and look good. That it wasn't, but it was, certainly wasn't a. Um, I didn't feel like it was nostalgic at all. But then it's also like Turn Off Your Guns was never released, right? Like I mean, I think there's it's there's like live versions of it around, but like I I don't think right. was that ever released on a recording? No, 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 yeah, because it's no, we never never made past. It was never even mixed. It was just a rough mix. There's there's no actual mix of that song that it's on that record is a rough mix. It was just never we never finished it. So I mean, what was what was it like going back to that and listening back? Did that bring you back to that time? Did that you know? No. Was it when you were really. looking at it like almost like scientist brain about stuff? Like what was what was the what was that process like digging into it? Just here's the thing. I don't I I think you have to understand, like my I'm always just here. So okay. I'm surrounded by like I'm at Discord House now and I'm surrounded by all this stuff. So for me, like I I don't like all these things, like I can talk to you about like 40 years ago or 50 years ago or 60, almost 60 years ago, I can talk to you about these things because I'm just here. Like, I don't think of it as like some spelunking thing where I have to go <laughs> deep into the okay, cavern, fair, fair, yeah. like the caverns of my past. I'm just like, like basically some years ago, like we were talking and I was digitizing. I've been working archives and I've been, I've been, one of the things I've done is, because um, recording tape, especially recording tape that was produced in the 1980s, um, uh, the magnetic tape was being produced in, there was a change in the formula of adhesive that holds the magnetic particles to the plastic strip, which is the tape. And it was the change was done for, according to the the industry um for environmental reasons others of us think maybe there was an, a fiscal reason um but in any event this particular adhesive um the change resulted in adhesive that would um dry up and as a result the <clears throat> when you play a tape it degrades the, the magnetic particles are pulled off by the yeah. magnet which is the playhead and as soon as you have any buildup on there it stops playing. It slows down and it will stop playing. There can't be any friction. So um, most of our tapes were recorded in the 1980s. Most of the tape we used uh, was stock that was made in the 1980s. So I, some about 10, 10 or 12 years ago, 
I started on a pro- process of um, digitizing, baking and digitizing all of our tapes um, because I thought it was important uh, to... Um, you don't want it to be lost to the world. I mean, it's... Right, I, I <laughs> felt like this is important entropy taking to me. Its toll. Yeah. It's important, <laughs> important to me, so we'll do it. So I am really familiar with, with what we have, and in that process, you know, I digitized the, uh, Fugazi's first demo and thought, this is really cool-sounding, I had forgotten that we did weird mixes of waiting room. I had forgotten some of the stuff on there. And I thought at the time, you know, we didn't put it out because we just didn't think it was representative of the band. Keep in mind that, you know, Guy at that point was singing one or maybe two songs. He was still fairly new to the, uh, to, to playing with like, you guys. Right. I mean, right. He, well, we, we were fairly new to playing as a band period. This was, we started playing in September of 87. This recording was done in, I think late December or early January. So just a few months in, and it was just before, you know, we, before we had written, say, Bulldog Front or, you know, Margin Walker or, or whatever, Bulldog Front or this, you know, all these songs that Guy sang. Um, so it just sort of seemed like it was, it was just a demo. But it, going back to it and hearing it, it was like, was pretty interesting and kind of cool. And then I thought, oh, yeah, we also had that Turn Off Your Guns, which I had on a cassette, a rough mix. And, um, I think was it um, was there another another song too? Maybe oh the um, the word. Well, it's another song which we never. I don't think we ever mixed. It was just on a just on a cassette. So uh, I think. But in any event, we um, we put yeah. So we decided to put it out because we thought people might find it interesting. That's all. But it wasn't. It wasn't like we got together and like you know, like glowed about how. <laughs> you know, right, you know, right, can't right. believe it, dude. Like. Slap not, each other's just, backs, yeah. <laughs> no, it's just I just don't I don't think that way. I don't I don't I'm not an anniversary guy. I don't I just don't that's I just do my work. I work what's in front of me. And and that at that point in time, what was in front of me was a tape of stuff that I thought people might find interesting. It's like the Fugazi Live series. It's an insane project. Yeah. It really you is. Know? It's and it's I'm ambitious and it and it's uh, uh it's, it's breathtaking a, in its scope, pretty much. A, a decade later and I'm I'm up to my ears in the work still. I have 60 more shows to put up. I have hundreds of new images to put up. It's crazy. And, and really, I mean, it's certainly not a moneymaker. Um, but there's something about it uh, that I find really joyful. And uh, primarily what it is is it has given, as a project – people contact me and they say, Oh, here I have this recording or I have this photo or whatever. And it's just a way of interacting with human beings. And I think that a lot of things that I do, people don't understand why I do them. Um, you know, for instance, I've been typing up my journals, uh, and people say, Oh, you're writing a book. No, I'm not writing a book. I'm not writing a book. I'm just typing up my journals. And they're like, and I was, and I, someone asked me about it and they say, why are you doing it? Like I might tell them something from the journal. I might read to them something from the journal, and they say, "Why are you, why are you doing this?" I said, "For this fucking moment right now, mm. where I can talk to you about you it." Talk to you about. So you're talking about these actually like physical like books, like like physical journals. That yeah, you, they're handwritten. Okay, yeah, yeah, and then also you get to you know if that book were to be destroyed or lost, it would be right. gone for forever. So it's a way to. Right. There's that, and there's another aspect of it, which which is that. Um, and my transcriptions, I'm um, making uniform references so I can, this is more of a research tool. So, for instance, 
um, like I worked at Inner Ear Studios. Um, I've worked with Don Zentera there for, oh, for, it's actually over 40 years now, right? So I refer to Don's or Inner Ear as Don's or I might say the studio. And so every time I write about going there, I write now Inner Ear. That way, if, I need, if I'm trying to figure out, like if I want to go back for research purposes to figure out like when did I record this or whatever, I can just enter inner ear and I'll get, I'll get hits for every time. Oh, so, so you can almost right. like, it's like, a, it's like an indexed memory almost. Exactly. Oh, cool. So, like, All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so I've been doing that. So I've been making uniform um, things and also and putting in, um, when you keep a journal, like the journals I kept as a, when I was, I only kept them for about a decade or a little less even, but um, I made a decision when I started to to write what I did, not what I felt. Um, hmm. Because I thought that if I wrote what I did, there was a prayer that I might remember how I felt. But if I wrote what I felt, there would be no chance I'd remember what I did. Um, so <laughs> no, that, that doesn't make sense. I get it, yeah. So my journals are really these weird kind of like descriptions of days. Occasionally I might say I'm pissed about something or I don't feel well or whatever, but by and large, even in moments where I talk in my journals where I'm referring to being upset about something, I don't usually say what it is um, because that's not the point. It doesn't matter. It's just I was upset about something and then move on to the, and then I went to the post office or then I did that, you know, and I mean, sometimes I think, God, just what the fuck was going on? I wish I had written it down, but, <laughs> yeah, that's but clearly yeah. it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, and so I think that because of that, it is a really interesting um, trail of, of, of activity. It's like, it's like, and it's interesting to read that, to read as I type it, type it up. Like I, I realized that a lot of times I would just mention somebody by their first name or their nickname. Um, but now I, because I can still remember it, I'll put in their whole name just because I think it's important, um, just to have like the full name because at some point I won't remember that. Right. 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 And so it's, it's, it's fascinating cause this is, this is what's, um, I don't know if it's the official term, but they call it a memory palace technique. You, you, uh, basically it's a way to like, it's used in storytelling, but it's also just something for, for people that want to uh, develop memory and, and it's, it's, yeah, it's linking certain things together uh, in that same way. So it's really interesting and it's fascinating also because I just remembered I saw you at I think it was a Jewish community center in San Francisco uh, do like a talk I don't know six years ago? Seven oh yeah. Years ago? Do you yeah, yeah. That? yeah. 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 And uh, it was great because you know well first of all I, I loved your candor of, of basically being like I don't exactly know <laughs> what, what it is I'm going to be doing here but all the stories you told were super interesting and the thing that made them so interesting is it had that level of detail. It, it had like high levels of detail and just kind of like little bits and nodes that uh, of, you know, things that, that kept kept you hooked into it. And, you know, I, re I remarked at the end of it, I was like, like, wow, I hope that I have that level of recall. Uh, yeah, I have. Things like I've, that later. My, my family are, <clears throat> I come from a family of writers. So my... All four of my grandparents were involved with words, and my parents were words. My mother actually kept, when she died, she left us 60 years of journals plus, like, 60 years of correspondence and really unbelievable amount of writing. She was a 
brilliant writer. I mean, just absolutely brilliant writer. And um, I think that that just comes through osmosis. My, mm. But I, I am really – it's taken me a long time to realize that everybody doesn't think about their lives. Like I – everything is very – like I have a narrative sense. So if you ask me – you know, someone said to me um, – the other day they said, Oh, do you, Oh, you must have an Eddie Van Halen story. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you just die. Right. Right. And I said, well, actually in 1978, you know, Henry and I, Henry Rollins, who Henry at the time, Henry Garfield and I were skateboarders and we took a Greyhound bus across the country. I was 16. He was 17. And we went to go skateboarding cause we were skateboarders and we, by ourselves, went across the country on a Greyhound bus. We went first to Northern California and we skated at Winchester Park um, and hung out with some friends of his. I watched, for the first time ever, I watched tennis because Henry, they had a tennis, they had like Wimbledon or something on. Oh, okay. And Henry said like, we should watch, you should watch this. And I was like, who wants to look at tennis? And he's like, it's great. Let me explain it to you. And, you know. He, I, you he, know, he so, was a fan. He already knew. He like. Well, he understood it. Henry, okay. is, Henry is brilliant. And so, so then we went down south. We went down and we stayed with my uncle who lived in Pasadena. My uncle, my great uncle and great aunt. I don't have any. My parents are both only children, so I have no uncles or aunts. But my great uncle and his wife, and we stayed with them for a, a week or maybe 10 days and took the bus all over creation and went skating. And at some point, he gave us a ride out to Upland um, to go skating at a park called the Upland. Um, it was the Upland Skate Park, which had the it's called the Pipeline. Um, the pipeline is, it's literally a pipe, a full pipe. And, uh, it was upland. It was very famous because a natural, like an actual pipeline that people went skating in. That was like a, and you know, an actual water pipe or a sewage pipe, whatever. But then they built a park with a full pipe and we were skating in the full pipe right there. And this it was the, the, the pipe part of the park was, was right next to a parking lot. And one of the kids who was skating had a, like a pickup truck he had backed up to against the fence and he had a couple of stereo speakers in the back of the, of the bed of the pickup truck and he was blasting this music and it was so good. And I said to the guy, what is this? He says, it's the Edward Van Halen group. And I thought that shit is great. Yeah. So that's the way my brain works. Like I just remember shit like that. And it's funny cause Rollins is like that too. Like, you know, you should hear when the two of us get going. It's, it's, it's a, a lot of lot of linked experiences and uh, interesting ephemera, but also, I'm sure. But also an interest in detail and and, and narrative, you know, narrative stuff. Do, do you find I you was, guys focused on different things? Like, would he bring up something that like maybe you don't didn't remember, and vice versa? Or we have a lot of con- effect. I don't know. <laughs> we remember a lot of things. We remember a lot of things. Um, I actually called him recently because I found. My parents asked me to write a letter to them every other day from that trip. I didn't, they, in lieu of a journal. I didn't keep journals at the time. So my parents, my mom or dad, or both of them said, look, you have to write us every other day. And I did it. I didn't remember mm-hmm. doing it, but I just found those letters. Oh, um, wow. I typed, and I typed them up. You know, I typed them up as part of my, my journal project. And, um, and they're fascinating because there are a lot of things in there that I don't remember at all. And I called Henry to see... <laughs> If he remembered them, yeah. and he, he didn't remember them, um, a lot of the stuff either, but he remembered some things that I didn't remember. Um, and they're my, 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 the things that I wrote were 
they're pretty brief usually. You know, like they're, you know, like this is July 14th, 1978. Yesterday we went to the Pepsi skateboard team demonstration. It was all right except for the smog. Really nasty. <laughs> right. Yeah. After that, we went, to the store to get, we went to the store to get supplies to eat. We came home and swam. My great uncle and aunt had a pool. Today the smog was terrible. First alert warnings were out. Henry and I decided to go down to the drugstore. On the way back, I got sick, and I couldn't even get a good breath of air, and my eyes were burning. Stanley says I have asthma. So he gave me some kind of pill, and I got better, but I stayed in for the rest of the day. I don't, I mean, I vaguely remember being, getting, not make, being able to ride back from the, the item where we went to a drugstore, but um, I just remember being, I couldn't breathe because the smog was so terrible. Then. So that's the kind of, that's that's the whole entry for the day, but there were things that I've talked about, like French said, at one point, um, my great uncle drove us out to Val Surf, which is in the valley, it was a skateboard shop, which is very famous for anybody who ever looked at Skateboarder Magazine in the 70s, because they had like the greatest ads. And I don't remember this at all. I said we bought a lot of stickers, and we took a bus home back to Pasadena. That's still how we were rolling. Um, <laughs> a public yeah, exactly. Bus. In style. Um, yeah. And, but Henry, he did, I think he did remember Val Surf. I didn't remember it. So yes, we do. There are things that we can fill in blanks for each other. I mean, that's nice. And that, and that's a friendship that's been, you know, you guys have known each other for a very long time. And that's. Yeah. Since I was 11 years old. So it'll be 50 years next year. And that's, um, or almost 50 years, yeah. Two years. No, three years. But anyway, close. Um, I'm running out of time, so we might want to... Yeah, okay, sure. So, so uh, uh, oh, oh, my God, I didn't even see the time. I'm sorry. I, I didn't didn't realize. Uh, one, one thing real quick, and then we'll close it out. I just... If you could briefly tell me about the song suggestion. I know that uh, when you guys played it live, this is a little before I became aware of Fugazi, where you have uh, different people sing it. And things yeah. along those lines. I was like really curious as to the mechanism behind that, the mindset. Like, it, was that sort of like how that song was originally conceived, or is that something where it just kind of made sense uh, later on? What do you mean by mechanism? Uh, <laughs> poor choice of words. Uh, d- was it something where you were like, "I'm going to write this song, and I'm not always going to be the person that's going to sing it," or it, was it something where, "Hey, it might be cool to have." Uh, a, an awesome lady singer sang this. Like, is, is this, was that something that, did the, did the, the, the content or uh, of the song and what the song became drive the action? Or was it something that just ha- kind of happened naturally a little more? Because you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the whole playing music versus being a band, like that kind of thing. Fugazi was part of the initial idea of Fugazi was it was going to be sort of an open cast kind of thing that, different people would play with us. And we actually did have very early on, like someone would come up, play trumpet or somebody would play, you know, congas or something, but it didn't really pan out the way I sort of hoped. I mean, I don't want to get into the weeds, but there was these other, I had these other ideas before Fugazi that was going to be almost like a, um, a communal band, oh, like okay. a series, a series of bands that were all under one, umbrella but it's too involved to get into right now but so fugazi originally one of the ideas was it would be sort of open to people um it didn't work out that way but it didn't mean that we were it was locked to the four of us and um 
the song Suggestion, I wrote, I did not write it for other people to sing, um, except for the fact that every song I ever wrote, I wrote for other people to sing, right? I mean, like, <laughs> well, the yeah, idea, sure. <laughs> every song I ever wrote, I want people to hear and I want them to sing along. From, from the larger um, perspective, sure, yeah. Right. Um, but the song was a song that I initially wrote. Um, I was trying to write a conversation between a man and a woman in which they use the same words, but the source of those words changes the meaning. Mm. So, to wit, the first line of the song, why can't I walk down the street for your suggestion? The woman says that. And she's talking about men suggesting things to her. Mm -hmm. Then the man says, why can't you walk down the street for your suggestion? But he's talking about her behaving suggestively. You see what I'm saying? Oh wow. Okay, I've never, I've never actually thought about that. Okay, yeah. Then the woman says, "Is my body the only trait in the eyes of men?" So she's asking, "Is that all men think about her? Is her body?" Is that it? Yeah. And then he, then the man says, "Is your body your only trait in the eyes of men?" So he's saying, "Is that all you think that your body is what?" So it was, I, it was a really, it was a puzzle. The idea of this song, right, right, um, and frankly, it was. Very, it was a very difficult. It was too hard, and I didn't like the man at all in the conversation. I just didn't think it was what he had to say in this this song was productive. Because um, it's kind of so, an overrepresented viewpoint, anyway. And it's well, I was just I was just I was playing with the idea. So okay. instead, I decided to write a song as I imagined maybe a woman might speak about violence. Right. Because I could yeah. I had experienced violence in my life and I had experienced the kind of fear and terror of it. And since I think of rape as a violent crime, um, I felt like I could um, I could tie I could use that. And so um, so the song was written. But really, you know, it, it was a, I was I did write try to write from a woman's as I imagine a woman's perspective. But there were some people who uh, I was close to who um, their experiences were ex were the things that actually compelled me to write about it. There's a, people in the early punk days, everyone was were writing about things that were real problems. But that was an issue that people were not singing about very much. I mean, I you know, right. you, you, I don't think if you look in 1988... Or you know, eighty-seven. I guess eighty-eight, eighty-seven or eighty-eight. When I wrote it, if you look prior to that, I think you have a hard time finding songs that talk about women's, especially from dudes, talking about women's issues. There, there's sure there's a few. I'm not saying oh we're the first. Fuck that. Well, they they exist, but it's not like a right. common well, thing. Yeah. Right. So the point was, I was trying to address a human problem, a crisis in my mind which is sexual molestation, sexual assault, a, an issue that has been super destructive, is terribly destructive in our society and continues to be. So I thought, I want to sing about this. Now, there's some friends of mine, people I know and loved, who their experiences were things that provoked in me that desire and talking to them and, and, and hearing what happened to them. And in some cases, some of those people actually took the mic right. and sang the song. And there, there was a certain gravity to their, um, 
performance that was really unique and sp specific to them. There are other situations where people came to me and asked if they could sing the song. Mm, mm. And we said, sure, you can sing it. In one case, a woman, um, we had a show in um, Edinburgh in which a bunch of women came on stage and just took over. And just and you, you can hear it. You can, it's actually on the live series. It's the one. It, it's ironic. It's the first Edinburgh show, but the that's awesome. The only recording we had, <laughs> like we on every one of the shows, we always have a sample track. And it just so happens that for that particular show at the time, I only the only song I had from that show was that version of Suggestion. So there's it's a one song show, and because <laughs> it's a song, it's also the sample track. So you can hear the song. It's right there. Just play it. Right. But you'll hear women come up on stage and start talking about the issue. Um, but there was, I didn't imagine it. I, I thought it was, a, it was an issue that I felt really powerfully about and I wanted to sing about. And there were, you know, there were times later on where people, I, there was some consternation about whether or not, you know, we were exploiting women's issues to Whether sell it was appropriate or, something. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I just can't, I just can't fucking deal with that. You know, I just find that that kind of, um, I don't see the, I don't see anything productive about that kind of thinking at all. Um, but also I, I come from punk and I fucking sing about what I want to sing about. <laughs> exactly. I'll, I'll additionally, fuck you. There, there's right. I, said, well. not, I just, you know, I find <laughs> that kind of thing, you know, I, again, I just, it's it's straight but it's not really this you know it's that was a brief it was a brief period of there's a little bit of flap doodle about that but um mostly i meant well i mean well well to, and, and so i found out about this uh not because i saw it i actually didn't know about the band at this point but sharon cheslow was the one that uh -huh. told me about this. I, I did like a, an event with her like years back and she's telling me about it. And it just kind of sparked my imagination a little bit of like, wow, I wonder what that would look like. And then I actually saw, you know, I wasn't, I think it was then, like it was like years later, there was like some YouTube coverage, coverage, uh -huh. YouTube video yeah. of it or whatever. And it just, it just struck me as being a very, like a cool thing. Uh, and, well, and, and I appreciate you sharing uh, the, the mindset there and how that happened. Well, I mean, uh, we were pretty open. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think if you know, for instance, if you ever looked at the Meyer Threat video, a friend of ours named Tony Young asked if she could sing. She wanted me. She wanted to sing filler, and yeah. I was like, sure. I mean, I always want people to sing. I want people to sing along. And there's this, you know, we did a, you know, I we did a show in Sweden once where a woman wanted to sing the She wanted to sing um, "Burning Two, but she sings it in Swedish. <laughs> That's awesome. It was incredible. That's amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. <laughs> wow. So I think that we were just open. We were open to that idea. I mean, we're not going to, we don't want to like just, we're not a karaoke band, but you know, we're. <laughs> sure. Well, they, yeah, they, there's somebody, a line that, for sure. It takes but. A, but it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of, I think, you know, people, if they come to us, it means they're serious. And I think we yeah. try to respect that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that it was a, 
yeah, like you know, Amy Pickering from Fire Party was a really powerful singer. I mean, yeah. like so, whenever we were, if she, you know, like for instance, when she was in Europe at one point, we were there. She was there at the same time we were. We said, "Oh, you should sing because she's one of our dearest friends." I mean, I, I, Amy, I just had a note from Amy an hour ago. I'm, you know, we're always in touch, and she worked for me. She worked at Disco for twenty years, so we, we're we're pretty thick over here. <laughs> you can tell so, too. I mean, it's it's. In a good way, like it's in, in a way that's I feel is a like that's a good way to be. You know, yeah. again, it's all part of an ecosystem. It's all part of a community. Is is how I feel about it. I, I want to be mindful of your time, uh, Ian. Thank you so much for for agreeing to do the show and spending so much time with me. Last thing I usually end on, uh, and you can choose to interpret this however you like. Uh, I just ask people the question: Why do you do what you do? Hmm. Why do I do what I do? I guess it's to get it done. <laughs> that may be the most direct and succinct answer I think anyone's ever done, and I love it. Cool. Uh, dude, thanks so much. Um, really appreciate your time. Appreciate what you do. Um, cool. Yeah, and I hope that uh, two hours. If you're yeah, I'm sorry. I kept you way longer than we originally talked about. I, I feel really bad about that. Please give my apologies to. Well, don't feel, don't feel bad about it. It's just mostly this is actually one of the reasons that I'm podcasts are so tricky for me because I'm loquacious and I just talk too much and I have and like while I'm talking like I'm looking at a stack of paper mail that's like two months old and I've been trying to answer and I have you know. 3,200 emails I'm supposed to answer. Um, but then, you know, and this, the thing about these kind of conversations are, you know, if you came over to my house, mm -hmm. I sat down, we had a cup of tea, I'll talk to you all day. But it's not, it's just because it's a conversation. But in, there's a transactional component to this, which is weird for me, because this is actually for your, your podcast. For people right? listening in, yeah. Right, and um, I'm your content, um, and and th and this is what and this kind of kind of dovetails with my um, you know the reasons that I get I get prickly about stuff because I feel like I I'm not looking to poke like I don't I'm not trying to poke a tiger, you know I'm not looking to get people all up, upset, you know, and, no, but, from it. right. And, um, and as I said, if, you know, if my public publicist of which I don't have one, but if I did have one and they were, Hey, we got, you know, this record coming out and we really want to get this person, you know, we want to get them on your show. And I'm, I imagine you've dealt with some publicists in your day. Um, but that kind of, you know, that's one thing. But if I'm just here minding my business, and you're writing me, um, it's a different. It's just a different equation, and I don't. And it's an It's it's funny because quite often it's like, though I enjoy the conversation, and I enjoy um, because I like to talk, um, and I hope that there's something nutritious in these words for people. I hope that people, if they are listening to it, something good will come from it for them. Uh, 
sometimes I hear a conversation, an interview with somebody, and it's I find it helpful. Um, but if it's agitating for them or agitating for me, then I think, well, well, that was too bad because it just meant well. Yeah, th- that's certainly never the intent, uh, at least from my perspective and what I do. I mean, this this is not a commercial entity. You know, oh, I know. And, and it's and I and I talk to people because that's the people I talk to are the people I'm interested in. And that, that can mean a number of things. You know, again, we could we could have it. I'm sure we could have like a three hour conversation just about like record label <laughs> stuff. Right. But I, I appreciate that you um, that you're very giving of your time for what, what we were allowed to talk. about. I think we could hit some really interesting stuff. And, you know, I've been lucky enough that to get some great feedback from listeners that, that people get something out of this show that kind of makes life a little less shitty, you know? And, and like, okay, that's not bad. You know, that, mm. that, that's, 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 that's a nice thing to hear, you know, especially with something like this where it can sometimes feel like you're just throwing stuff out into a void, uh, you know, to hear that you're actually making someone's life a little bit better is, uh, you know, that, that's, that's nice feedback. And, you know, you've certainly, with all your music, all your bands, uh, you know, with, with the label, um, just with your take on things, it's always thought-provoking and always interesting. And I don't know. I, I'm, I'm glad for the opportunity, man. I've wanted to do this for literal years, and I'm glad. <laughs> and I'm glad I finally wore you down enough to do it, and I hope, I hope it was an okay experience for you. I think that <clears throat> life is not shitty. And I hope that people I, – I think life is rich. And I understand that it can feel feel hard, but it's all we got, you know. And I think that I hear you on that, and I hope that people will start by thinking, like, I hope that, like, again, I I always like what well, I'm encouraged when I hear from people who have like who are thinking um, it makes me happy. Um, but I also think life is rich, and I know that. I know it's like when you say like a little less shitty, I still think life is shitty. <laughs> so, um, um, right. And I'm, and I, and I understand why people feel that way, but maybe, maybe people should think about why it feels that way. What, what they're doing that is, is creating the, like what they've done that is exacerbating that feeling or whatever. Like what, I don't know. It's like if someone feels like, you know, I'm like, I'm, I just feel so sedentary. I'm life is so sedentary. Go for a walk. Right. You know, that's the situation. Right. Yeah. Change the source of light. That's exactly right. Well, if I've learned anything from DIY, it's that, uh, you can imbue yourself with more power than, the world might tell you that you have and that can that can mean a lot of things but right it, it's some it's something to remember and i think <laughs> i think a lot of us need a reminder of that sometimes so right thanks well i that. think that's my that was my point i was trying to remind people Thank and you. i don't want i also don't want to again i really don't want to minimize the struggles that people are going through i don't want to minimize the illness yeah. people are suffering i don't want to minimize the death that people have experienced in their lives I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to play that off and I'm not trying to be, um, yeah, I don't want to be dismissive of that of whatsoever. But I also, I also don't want to be dismissive of the fact 
that there's so much good. Yeah. Um, and if you don't like, like when these people got into the White House, I guess living in Washington D.C. my whole life. For a lot of us here, we see the government as a business. It's the business that's in town. And the bosses, you know, they're of, you know, the effect of those bosses is, you know, they're always the bosses and they're, it's always, you know, they all have their problems. <laughs> right, right. Um, be it the movie they, industry or like auto right, manufacturing, exactly, this, exactly, is, their, this right. is their product. <laughs> that's exactly, exactly right. And so for those of us, we're like, okay, that's the new boss. But like, if you, you know, Washington, D.C. is an unusual town. Like we, you know, we have this enormous population. We have no representation in Congress. Um, and the federal government essentially runs our city. They make decisions for us. Yeah, they have veto power over the budget. I mean, come on. Right, Are you right. Me? And they also, you know, they, like, you know, they took it to the Supreme Court, but they, you know, forced us to, like, let people carry guns and stuff. And it's just everybody, you know, it's across the board, you know, that people are like, no, we don't. We don't want that. And yet they're like, yeah, but you're going to have it because we're the test case. You know, that's they just use us. So at some point, you realize that in terms of their power, you're powerless. But in terms of your own power, you have your own powers. Um, and when in 2016, and then 2018 or whatever those years, or 2016 especially, and I say, look, they got the Congress. You know, they got the the Senate. They got the White House and Supreme Court. They took it all. They took it, right? They stole it. Yeah, they ran the table. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Don't give them your joy. Mm. Oh, okay. Right? No, that, that's, that's, that's they a took really those good things. point. Yeah, don't yeah. give them the joy. Because huh. if you're miserable, like if you're just going to be miserable, who wants to hang out with miserable people? <laughs> like I feel like... <laughs> Yeah, no, that's right? a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so why, yeah. like, so like, everyone's just like, you know, miserable and like, oh, everything sucks. Fuck this. You're like, well, I don't want that. Like, no wonder people are having a hard time dealing with all this stuff. So I think, like, if anything, those of us who stand outside of that, yeah, who recognize the corruption and all that, we should actually recognize and celebrate the joyfulness that exists within our way of living, which is that we support individuals and their choices about how they want to live their lives. We think it's beautiful. We support that. We think it's joyful. And you, and part of being of that kind of joyful is to be, is actually to have a sense of joy. And if you're just going to be miserable and angry and frustrated, then it, it's unsustainable. Frankly, it's unsustainable. You can only go so far with that. So I feel like, yes, like, fuck all those guys up there. I understand that. That's always been the case to some degree for us. Um, but the reason that punk exploded here in Washington, I think, was that we we're like, we are miserable. Let's make something that we love. Right. Let, let, let's create something that is right. like the way it and ought to be. <laughs> and let's support. Let's recognize each yeah. other. Let's we can survive this together. And I think that that. And what's interesting, and this is where we go back to this fucking social media thing. That is really like a weird fucking medication mm. Mm. that people are taking. And you know, when when the um, George Bush Jr., George W. Bush, when he after the terrorist attacks in two thousand and one, 
uh, he immediately and he and his people immediately started fomenting for war. Yeah. Um, I was at a demonstration here in Washington on the 20th or 29th of September, right, right in the fucking aftermath of this thing, saying no war, like no war against Afghanistan. Yeah. No. Yeah, no, I was, I was in the uh, ones in Oakland. I, I remember right. Well. So yeah. we were so so. I was stunned when I, I started seeing the papers of record, namely the New York Times and the Washington Post, beating the drums of war, yeah, carrying water and 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 basically really? out repeating like, propaganda, really? <laughs> yeah. column after column, <laughs> writing about why we should go to war and 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 the and defense of this idea, and it was. On its face, it was ridiculous that this idea of of going to war with other countries over something that was clearly carried out by a small fraction of people, um, and and also a terrible idea that would have terrible consequences that would be long lasting. I think that point has been well proven now, and um, and I, re- I was thinking about. The role of the newspaper, because I, my dad worked for the Washington Post. I would read that paper every day. I subscribed to it. I would read it every day. And there was a moment in my life where I realized, like, wait a minute. The Washington Post, the editors for the Washington Post, carefully select what they're going to run. They're, I mean, it's not an accident what ends right, up there. Yeah, there's thought right, behind but, it. Right, but it's not just, but here's the thing. All of the news is selected. Everything, yeah, everything. that is yeah. in that paper is curated, right? It's curated, like the, the murders, the robberies, the car crashes, everything about it is curated by editors. They're the ones who decide what's going to run. So I realized that, wow, the news is depressing. And I'm like, yeah, well, why? They're, they're, they're the ones who are curating this news. And then by extension with the war stuff, like, it was clear to me that they were setting the boundaries of, of our reality. Like, th- have you ever seen? They were proud ever, of it. They, they, I mean, have you ever read <laughs> Ken Kesey's book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's yeah, Nest? Yeah, of course. Yeah. All right. So every day, all the patients line up, and Nurse Ratchet gives them their medication, and that medication frames their reality. Yep. Right. They down that thing, and that's their day. Randall McMurphy, the hero of that book. Chooses, doesn't take the medication not to participate yeah to aggressively not participate. so i fucking canceled my subscription to the post yeah because i was not going to have my reality fr- i'm going to read a book in the morning instead of the paper because it an- you don't have control over <laughs> the content that comes out of it but you can control your interaction with it of course and i also realized that they're talking about a car crash or say a murder or a car crash that happened somewhere within 50 miles of my house. So it's newsworthy. Why is it any more newsworthy than a crash? It was 150 miles away or a murder or 300 miles away. They have the same effect on my life. Really? Like there's no, like right now you and I are talking and it's possible that some terrible explosion happened somewhere in America and Many people died. It could have been an accident, a gas explosion. I don't know. Anything could have happened. Whatever, whatever but tragedy, it, yeah. But it didn't affect anything during our of our conversation. Right. So the news that is being delivered to us is, like, I'm thinking, like, well, why is this relevant and not this? 
And I realized it's because they're framing, I'm choosing how I want my reality framed. And I thought, I'm just going to stop that. Hmm. I'm not, I also was mad at the post because they're clearly pro war. Oh yeah. And, I mean, it was, it was blatant. <laughs> right. So I think that the, um, I think now it's so much more insidious. Um, I know this because my friends, I have, you know, people, very close friends who are very tied into social media. And every time I talk to them, they'll say, oh, did you hear blah, blah, blah. And it's like some terrible piece of news. And that's the first thing, because they just found that out. I'll find out about it at some point. It doesn't matter. Like, I don't need to know it now if I find out tonight or tomorrow morning. You don't get a trophy because you found out about it first. Right. And I think that mostly... I don't want to constantly have to be grappling with how to process this information that is basically, or how to comprehend something that is largely incomprehensible. I think that's good food for thought. Uh, I think, I think there's a lot, lot to learn with that. And that's something I'm, I know I'm going to deeply consider and I I appreciate your view, man. And that's, I think you, I think you got a lot of wisdom there and it comes from an informed place. And I appreciate that. Good talking to you. Good talking to you too, man. Later. There he goes. Fucking Ian McKay. Uh, here's a Kariki song.
There you go. That was a suggestion off of 13 songs or the self-titled, depending on which school you come from. And then before that, we had a Kariki, which is off of the excellent Kariki record that came out earlier this year. Yeah, man. Wow. Okay, so that was really cool. Uh, I'm re- I'm really glad that he agreed to do that. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I know I did. <laughs> Far ranging conversation. Um, I wish it was the version he was talking about with the all the women singing. That's gonna be cool. I'm gonna try to find that on the Fugazi Live archive. Dig that up. It sounds really rad. name of the show is Kona Neutron's Protonic Reversal. Thank you so much for listening to it. Really appreciate it. This has been a special stay-at-home edition on Friday. Signing off. There's on Radio Nope. Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea. RadioNope.com. Usually Thursdays, 8 Eastern. ProtonicReversal.com for the archives. Always free. I've got. But if you want an episode sooner, fifty thousand watts of power. One dollar a month at the Patreon will get you uh, earlier access. That's it. It's always free though. No ads, no sponsors. No kidding. Ionize the air. Hmm. That's about it, I think. Thanks, everybody. Stay safe out there. Out on Route 128, dark and lonely. Take it easy. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? to my top 10.
I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. if there's no one there to receive. It's the end of radio. As we come to the close of our broadcast See? <laughs> 